So feel free, as we make our way to that passage this morning, to make your way in your Bibles. Uh, this past week, I came across a really uh, interesting article uh, that popped up on my newsfeed on Facebook. Uh, clickbait for sure, uh, but under the concept of strange laws that still exist by Canadian standards, um, but are just, once again, a little different than what we might expect. So I pulled out some of these laws because I found that this whole concept of laws that don't really have that much application or strange application today kind of spoke into our passage this morning. Did you know a place in PEI, Suri, PEI, which actually means smile in French, it is illegal to build a snowman taller than 30 inches. Did you know Canadian businesses still by this law's existence are required to provide rail ties for horses if asked? In Toronto, it's actually illegal to, and I'm, I, I, don't, I would love to know where this one came, it's illegal to drag a dead horse down Young Street, specifically on Sundays. Apparently the rest of the week, you're good. And it's also illegal into Toronto to release more than 10 helium balloons. Yes, I do. These laws were made for some interesting reason at some point, but the reality is today they have lost their meaning. And these laws at some point probably had a really legitimate reason why. So while I change my batteries, take a moment, pick one of those, and try to come up with in your own mind a logical reason why that would have been a law that needed to be put in place. Show of hands, anyone want to share? No, we can move on. The reality is it'd be interesting to really see how many of these laws would be attempted to enforce today. And, uh, and it'd be interesting to see what grounds would someone argue as to why this is still relevant today. It's kind of like one of those things that has so much time has passed since the inception of the idea or the event that you've entirely forgotten why it happened in the first place. I bet you each of you who are in a relationship can think back to at least one of those fights that you have had with your spouse that went on so aggressively or so long that by the end of it, it was no longer even about the fight that began in the first place, but had evolved and morphed into something else. And as we're looking at this concept of strongholds within the Bible, I think it's important for us to recognize that strongholds are not always things that we have made on purpose. They are not always hills that we have decided to take a stand on and die on, but sometimes there are things that maybe had a great root and a great core to begin with, but have evolved and changed sometimes even without our own realization. And even when we look at Bible, we've been looking at, uh, in terms of scriptures, as we've been looking at this term of stronghold, we've been recognizing it's something to tear down and something to destroy, something negative. But scripture also speaks to the power and beauty that strongholds are. God is often referenced as a stronghold, a place of peace, security, and stability. But the reality is, if we get too comfortable in a place of peace, security, and stability, it has the potential to turn into something negative or negatively impact the way we behave otherwise. It becomes all too easy and comfy to sit at home on the couch at the end of the week rather than engaging our neighbor. And then when we look at, once again, this other side of strongholds, 
We look at it, and Scripture talks about these as being weapons of warfare. Things that were established and put in place to defend against, but also resist change from the inside. It says, For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. So we have to keep in mind that within this value of strongholds, not all of them began out of a bad attitude. Not all of them began out of uh, a desire to be a challenge in a situation. Sometimes strongholds were built for a very good legitimate military purpose and became something that they were never intended to be after. It's almost like the laws that we began with this morning probably had a very legitimate foundation to begin with, but today have just lost sight, at least for us, and maybe you do know why Sunday specifically is bad for dead horses on Young Street, but have become something of a relic of the past and something that we just struggle to understand. And as we look at this concept of strongholds forming out of good values being twisted or potentially even out of things that we've struggled with and fear turning into these greater obstacles, we look at Luke this morning and we begin our reading at verse 26. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Garderizians, two demons, uh, sorry, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met, not, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded, commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken the chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what's your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. The reality is we could spend about three different weeks looking at this uh, passage from each individual within the story. But there's a couple of things that I think are really important for us to recognize as we gloss over it and really only focus on a few verses at the end of this passage. The reality is in this situation, within this community, the spiritual landscape, the, the whole emotional wellness of the town had become a desolate Landscape. When we see what happened in this community as Jesus arrives, it, is, it has been an ongoing struggle of having to deal with this man. Now Luke's account says, or some of the accounts within Scripture talk about two men or one man. And I think it's important to mention that this isn't necessarily a contradiction. Likely within it there was one of the two that did the majority of the dialogue within Jesus and therefore within the account being different from the others. They just focused on creating a simple narrative of passage. Jesus speaking to one who was responding to him. 
But this area had been established as a number of small Greek cities. They don't have this huge historical understanding of Judaism or these prophetic uh, images of what's coming. And within this community, they have been stricken by spiritual oppression, which has taken the form of physical possession. Each and every one of us today, we all deal with this spiritual oppression that happens within being pressured by the forces of evil to either fail or put aside our values and priorities. But it's when our own energies, emotions get so empty and get so lost and we have not at all given Jesus space into it that it leads us into a position of being possibly possessed. So for a region not having this basis within hearing and existing in God's community are all the more likely to struggle with this type of thing. And thus this passage brings us to this violent man. This violent man had become incapable to live safely within the community, to live with safely. It says within Luke's passage, and it goes into more detail, that they had taken this man who was filthy, who was naked, who cut himself with rocks. They had tried to take him and restrain him from physically being able to hurt himself and hurt the people around him. And they had bound him within chains to try to once again stop the violence that was taking place in their community. And the man broke the chains. I don't even think I could break packing tape on a good day. Broke the chains being given a physical strength that is inhuman. We've seen, I'm sure we've all seen experiences where somebody's really upset and it takes three or four people to calm them down. But we're talking about an individual who cannot be calmed down who has such a violent physical presence that your mere life is in danger by being in the same space as him. And these demons pushed him farther away from the community that he grew up in, pushed him out into a place of solitude and where he lived within the graveyards, which carried its own political imagery, which carried its own sociological implications, especially when it comes to these concepts of purity within the Jewish understandings, and within the practices of just health and cleanliness. It is a place of disease. It is a place of death and a place that nobody tries to engage. And this man has been ripped out of his community and pushed outside of it, living within his own filth, within his own bodily harm, with his own emotional torment to live by himself. And the community itself rejected him. And the community, unfortunately, had gotten to a point where his exclusion without him being around was a relief for everyone. Not just in a sense of, oh, they're frustrated with the guy who's just making noise in the corner. It was an aspect of physical safety. And his possession, having driven him so far out of town, gave them a greater sense of peace, of relaxation, of comfort, not having to worry about risks or anything going on. If this guy is over there, then everything is better for this neighborhood. People are safer. We don't have to deal with the stress and anxiety and fear and struggle that he's going with. And the reality is the community had gotten to a point where they preferred in their own world that he just didn't exist. 
And the town gave such a wide berth to that whole area, they would do everything within their power to make sure that they did not run into these men, this man or these men. Now the reality is that Jesus, as he arrives onto the scene, everything changes within that moment. This deliverance that comes. As Jesus steps off the boat, the presence, the embodiment of God within earth acts like a magnet to this man. As God's presence comes in, there's nothing, as Archer said this morning, that can exist within that space that is not of God. And as such, whether he wanted to or not, this demon-possessed man came sprinting out of the cemetery, down from the hills, and came and dropped himself at the feet of Jesus. Being so compelled by Jesus' presence on earth that he had no physical reaction aside from coming and facing it. We always talk about how, once again, we struggle uh, in terms of knowing who God is, and we uh, have, in our own history, been deceived uh, at different points of believing that God does not exist. But the spiritual forces do not have that freedom. They sat in God's presence, were made by God when they left that presence. To them, it's not an issue of whether or not he's real or not. It's a running away from everything that he is and his presence and his peace because it is a physical thing that they cannot escape. There's a movie that came out back in the 90s about uh, two angels who had fallen and they were talking about it. And one of the angels said, I envy humans because they they allow themselves to get to a point where they can pretend that God is real, but we don't have that. We know, and it's something that we can't ignore as much as we know who we are and our own names. So as Jesus steps off the boat, this man comes sprinting down to him, and they are so compelled that they need to stand and kneel before, and the first thing that they do is they acknowledge Christ as Lord. They acknowledge exactly who he is. Now in this moment, they beg him for something specific. They beg him to be left on earth. They know that they are not allowed to exist in God's presence at this point in time. They know that there is the opposite of that, which they refer to as the abyss, which is a very interesting choice of words. Because what does abyss make you think of? Big black hole of nothingness? Well, once again, when these angels were thrown out of heaven for the rebellion that they led, they left the presence of God's person. And God's person is now on earth. And they know that even existing at an arm's reach of that would be better than existing without it altogether. Because that's what hell is in its most basic sense. It's not fire and lava and brimstone. It is the void of God. It is the void of his presence and peace. And if all good things can be attributed to God, every act of graciousness and love and compassion and and peace, then the lack of any of those things would be the most horrible place in in existence and in creation. And these demons are begging the Lord, do not send me, although we've rebelled, do not send me from some relation of your presence. Allow me to exist at least over here in this place. 
And what's interesting about this, in the name of Jesus, they literally had to ask for permission to move. Take a moment and let that sink in. So often we get this image of God and Satan in this eternal struggle, and we know that God is more powerful, but we think about it sometimes like this. That God is here, he's obviously more powerful, but man, Satan knows what he's doing, and he is powerful, and whatnot. Satan wasn't even the most powerful angel within heaven's kingdoms. Once again, as we read in the book of uh, Revelation and through Jesus' accounts, when he fell from heaven, he was hurled like a lightning bolt to the earth. And that was God's angels who did that to him. So as these demons are sitting here in this presence, faced by the divine, in the presence of God, they only have permission to do what he tells them they are allowed to do. And in that moment, they ask for permission to stay here, and he sends them into a herd of pigs. The the reason why I think this is so important for us to realize and recognize this aspect of what they are allowed to do and not allowed to do within the presence of God is because Scripture tells us through the work of the Holy Spirit that we have that same authority. That Jesus says, very truly, I tell to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. The Bible promises that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you will be a part of miracles and works and transformations that is more amazing than what Jesus did. And if there are any truth to what Jesus' words say here, and any reality to the way this relationship works with these spiritual forces and ourselves... Within the name of Jesus, within the presence of the Holy Spirit, when we invite him into that place, no evil has permission to do anything except what we tell it to do. And what our call to do as believers is to do, to give the instructions to do exactly what happened in this circumstance. For these spirits, for these forces, for these angels who've lost their way, to head directly to the feet of Jesus where they will be dealt with. And within the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what happens. So in this moment where these demons are being drawn to and falling to Jesus, and Jesus says, this is what you can and can't do, we are so humbly reminded as we read the impact of these verses within ones in other places within Scripture to recognize the authority that we have over evil in our lives. The authority that we have over brokenness within our lives. The authority that we have against over the spirits who are doing everything they can to distract and lead us away from God. In the name of Jesus, we command and they do. And within this moment, Jesus does something that is interesting allows these demons to head within a herd of pigs who then immediately commit suicide in mass. Which leads us to the end of this passage where there is the response from the community. Now let's take take a moment to what has just happened for this community here. They have been dealing with this ongoing, long-term, violent, destructive individual who has been lashing out violently, may have even permanently injured or killed people in this process. Because I can't imagine the people who chained him up when he broke out 
made out of that in, in one piece. They have been dealing with this in a way that has crippled the way that they function as a neighborhood and as a body. It has left this deep-seated fear in the back of their mind of what happens for me, what happens for my wife, what happens for my children if this man who can break chains comes back. Let alone he's cutting himself all over the place with rocks. What's he going to do to the people around me? This whole issue of this man has now been healed and redeemed for the community. They don't have to worry. They don't have to live in fear. They don't have to be crippled with anxiety over what will happen because of these men who are possessed, who live right over the hill. The freedom, the grace, the peace, the weight off their shoulders that that should have been should have been a life-changing thing for that community. It would have changed the way the whole cityscape lived. But as we read within the passage, what was their response to this freedom that God had provided? Fear, anger, betrayal. And all because... They lost a source of income. All because they had had a personal cost to the redemption process that took place for these men. Because it cost them something. Because it actually physically cost them to see redemptive work take place. It upset them. It made them angry. It bothered them. The reality is they would have rather gone back to the horrible life situation that they had where this guy was, or these men were over in the cemetery. And at least then they had their income stream back. They would have preferred to live within the chaos and destruction that gripped their life than actually see the value and amazing miracle that had taken place. And it makes you wonder, how bad were these individuals' lives for this to be their physical response to the miracles that God is doing? How blinded were these people that they would rather somebody die for physical income of themselves, for their own well-being financially? Somebody dying, somebody being destroyed was a more reasonable option for them. And I bet you that that was not the type of thing somebody woke up one day and was like, oh, if I could pay for this guy to die, I totally would. But I have a feeling the community getting to that point was, was a slow process. Through the events that had taken place, the people that were hurt, the violence that had happened, the disruption that it had caused to the town, that it was a slow shift for that community, for their values to shift. And I think over the course of that time, the only peace and security that they had found was probably within their employment. They had gotten this joy and identity out of their jobs, out of the prospect of farming. And they had taken so much of their value and identity out of that farming 
that the farming became an idol for them within their lives. And then those idols became strongholds. So much of this passage speaks back to the Exodus story as once again, Moses was gone and they decided we need a way to worship God and ended up in a horrible situation because of it. Because they put their value in the wrong things because they held the wrong priorities close to their heart and it misled them into a place that they never would have chosen to go there but without even realizing it, one small step at a time, they find themselves totally separated from what God would want. And for this community, financial security had become an idol in their lives. And their income had become such a stronghold that it shaped the way that they cared for those people around them. And their prosperity had entirely blinded them to the value of humans. Wanting these things is not bad in and of themselves. Income, money, resources are not bad things that twist people when you get them. But it's when you allow your value to be found in what those things that you amass are that you entirely lose sight of what God is trying to do. And what's so tragic is that this city, this community had become so lost when they were faced with what God was doing, when they were presented with the redemption and freedom and healing that could be found in Jesus' name, they didn't care. They didn't even want it. And they would have been happier going back to the way in which they lived before. So even the sense of, of what this community wanted, of what happiness looked like, was so lost. And it led them to a place of blindness. And I think that's, that's an important thing to recognize about strongholds. Strongholds make us unable to celebrate and recognize what it is that God is doing in our lives. When we start leaning into these priorities that have gotten misshapen, when we start leaning into finding our value in things that are not important... When either money or possessions or status or authority becomes so important to us, we start missing the things that God is doing around us. And I think the reality is that this isn't a decision that anyone would make when they wake up one morning. But I think it's something that we all can at least think of one time when we have done before. That we believe that good things are to come. That we know that God has the capacity within His grace to do amazing things. That God, through His infinite power, can accomplish anything. But we've had a bad experience, so we're not going to do that again. So we're really happy with the way that this looks within our church and community. So we're really not going to put that at risk by doing anything different than what we've done before. By maybe even you yourself have convinced yourself that what you have to offer is less valuable than the person next to you. Even as we're talking about this nomination process, it's, it's amazing how, how quickly our minds have a desire just to scroll back through the list of who's done it before and let's, let's start with seeing if there's anyone who's, who's ready to come back. 
And we do spend time in thinking and praying about new, newness. New individuals, new contributions, and how much that could change the landscape of what God is leading us to understand in terms of our own church identity, but also in terms of the impact that we have. Because unfortunately, we allow ourselves to build walls, and walls restrict the work of the Holy Spirit. When we get into a comfort of routine, which I think is one of the greatest struggles of the North American church today, when we get into a routine of comfort, of knowing this is what our year looks like, these are the events that we're going to do, this is the outreach that we're going to do, that is the same slow scale of descent of finding ourselves five years down the road of having missed all these amazing things that God is leading us to do. Looking at the next year and saying, okay, how do we do it last year? That alone in its question can lead us down to a path where we stop allowing the Holy Spirit to work newness in us. I mean, we are a faith where we believe things are made new. I would think for an organization, for a movement that believes in making things new, very seldomly we'd ever do something the same way twice. And doing things differently every time will mean that there are things that you try which are catastrophic failures and you learn from them and move them aside. But we should see failure like steps in a set of stairs leading us to something greater through the discernment and power that the Holy Spirit gives us to find the value within what we do, to find new application for it. And I think there is a fear for us in terms of what it will actually mean when we get to that next stage. When things do shift, what will they look like? How will we get there? Who's going to be involved in that process? There's, there's a lot of unknowns. But the great thing is, within what God does and the way He works through people, you don't need to know. He'll let you know when you need to know. And within Scripture, we see so many stories of people taking steps of faith without any real logical information or guarantee of the way things are going to come. And then God does something greater than they were ever able to accomplish on their own. So as we think about this concept of strongholds, what we recognize through this passage today is they are not intentional things that we build each and every time. They are things that appear over time, one brick at a time, and we may not even be aware that they exist within our lives. Which brings us to the question for this morning of what is it that has become a stronghold for you in your life? Maybe you realize what that is. Maybe you already know what it is that you are holding on to more tightly than God would like. And maybe you're aware of some ones that you're struggling with and you know that there's probably a bunch that you haven't even figured out yet. But through the wisdom and empowerment of the Spirit and the Spirit's leading, we can be told through God what exactly those things are that we are holding on too tightly to and the ones that we need to take hold of more firmly. And in doing that, we will find ourselves in a position where we will constantly receive the blessing 
of the Holy Spirit, where we will see things happening through Mark and Missionary like we see in the Bible, where dozens were added to their numbers daily, where people are physically healed of the ailments that they have, where brokenness is left on the altar for the Lord to deal with, and people walking away whole. And we remember that through the work of the Holy Spirit, that it is we, the body of Christ, we, those followers of Jesus, that have the authority to make these things happen within this community. And the question for each and every one of us, and we could do it as, as a body as well, and they would be totally different, but what for you has become that stronghold that you hold on to, or that you may not even aware exists? As the team comes forward, let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we ask for your guidance within our lives. We ask that you would teach us and lead us within our own prayers this coming week. Lead us to see with eyes that are from you. Lead us to understand with the discernment that comes from you of what it is that we personally ourselves are struggling with. And Lord, we pray for freedom. And Lord, we know that you will give this freedom, but Lord, we pray we do not respond to it like this community did, with fear, anger, upset because things are different. But Lord, may we take joy, may we celebrate how you are leading us out of tombs. And Lord, allow us to see you as the only stronghold that we need. In your name we pray. Amen.